Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Greetings, future followers. A lot of you have been asking me why I should be chosen golden messiah of the desert planet, and I've got two words for you. Sandworms. What about them? A heckler. I miss the old days where you could shove them. Now it's, do you want a juice box? Disgusting. I don't think I was heckling. I was just asking, what about sandworms? What about them? They're 1,300 feet long and 300 feet thick. They can come out of the sand and eat you like a Pringle and poop you out as some kind of hallucinogenic spice that allows other people to fold space and time. That's what about them. I don't know anybody who has ever seen one. Again, with the lies and the deceit. I miss the old days when you could kick that kind of person and put them on a stretcher. Hey, we don't win anymore because sandworms. So repeat that silently to yourselves. We don't win anymore because sandworms. How does that help? See, in the old days, you could take a guy like this, chop him up, and put him outside the wall I'm going to build, and then the sandworms could have something to eat. We've got a crisis right now, and so far, no previous golden messiah of the desert planet has been willing to talk about what we have to do. Feed certain people to the sandworms. Wait a minute, you're talking about... And the minute we start doing that, the frozen yogurt's going to taste better, the air conditioning's going to start working again, you'll have ostriches as pets, and there won't be sand in everything you eat, drink, or touch. When the babies come out of the lady parts, there won't be two pounds coming out with them. It'll be the old planet we used to be so proud of. As far as I know, this planet has always been crappy, and there has always been sand and everything. Okay, I've been very patient. On the other hand, there's a new hope growing inside me that I've never felt before. I support you, Golden Messiah. That's what I'm talking about. Now the rest of you can learn how to do that from this radio show, which... Look out, Sandworm! Where? You missed them. They are so fast. And now, the supreme overlord of the sacred supply cabinet, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I've never really sort of risen uh, to a, an important leadership role, but I'm very important in terms of the supply cabinet. Um, all right, so you just heard uh, an apparently charismatic leader using the notion of crisis, uh, which, uh, as we will discuss today, is often one of the things that, one of the fulcrums uh, on which uh, leaders or, or would-be leaders try to move their followers. Uh, we're going to talk in a, in a much broader way, though, about what leadership is, how we define it, and to what degree there's become a leadership industry, um, a multi-billion dollar leadership industry. Uh, and our starting off point for this is a fascinating piece uh, in The New Yorker, recently written by Joshua Rothman. It's called Shut Up and Sit Down, Why the Leadership Industry Rules. Uh, and he joins us today. In just a little while also, we're going to have a conversation with uh, Joshua and uh, one other writer, Mark Har- Harrington, about uh, authoritarianism in particular. And then towards the end, because we're located in Connecticut and it's one of those stains we can never uh, completely shirk, uh, we're going to talk to an expert on the research of Stanley Milgram, who looked after World War II at the ways in which people purporting to be leaders can get other people to do appalling and apparently violent things. Uh, so lots to talk about, we're, but we're going to begin with Joshua Rothman. Um, ordinarily, first of all, welcome to the show. And, and secondly, or, ordinarily, one of the first things we want to do is define our terms. But one point that you make early on in your essay is leadership is almost a term uh, in search of a definition, or at least uh, to which so many definitions have been appended that it's, it's hard to know what it is we're talking about. 
And in fact, there's a um, there's a, a professor of leadership studies named Joseph Roth, and he uh, undertook a project in 1991 where he read as much of the leadership scholarship as he could, going all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century. And he found that during that period, leadership had been defined in, in 200 different ways, um, and that different writers, even within their own books, couldn't settle on a single definition of leadership. So it's a very elusive uh, elusive term, and people tend to think about it in very contradictory ways. So then this is something that, therefore, people have looked at for a long, long time, as you point out in the piece. Uh, there's lots of famous names like Plato and Machiavelli associated with this. And, and certainly uh, in the 20th century, Freud, Fromm, Jung, you know, a lot of theorists looked at the question of, well, you know, we've all got the same DNA and two arms and two legs. Why do people invest all kinds of power uh, and hope and excitement in one person uh, as opposed to every, everybody else? What goes on uh, in that process? But one, one thing that you say here is it's gone from an interesting theoretical question pursued by scholars uh, to an industry. I think you say a $14 billion industry. What it, describe what that leadership industrial complex is. I mean, it's totally fascinating. And I think probably many people who've worked in an office or a big organization have um, at some point come into contact with something, whether it's like a leadership training seminar uh, or whether it's uh, you know a book that we're all supposed to read that's about leadership, um, it's a there's a huge um, sort of complex of you know private uh, private sector and educational um, programs that are aimed at at identifying leaders early, grooming leaders, developing what are called leadership qualities, which are pretty hard to pin down, um, and and just in general trying to trying to teach leadership. So yeah, McKinsey, the consulting firm. A few years ago, did a um, a study, and they found that leadership, uh, you know, corporate America spends fourteen billion dollars a year on leadership uh, leadership training activities. Um, that many executives say that um, leadership training, sort of leadership qualities, are their number one priority when it comes to thinking about human resources and certain aspects of human resources. And you know, schools now. I think a lot of times I, I was at a a middle school event uh, a while ago, and you know, you'll you'll hear. Um, a teacher in a middle school say something like, you know, we're training the leaders of tomorrow. And certainly a lot of universities talk in those terms. So leadership has become this like vague uh, virtue that we're all trying to cultivate. And it's sort of up there with other virtues like creativity or something that are a little hard to to explain or describe. We all know that they're good. Um, obviously, politicians talk a lot about leadership. And they, they say all the time, you know, America needs new leadership. It needs more leadership. It needs sometimes they'll say we need American leadership which I guess is distinctive from other kinds of leadership. So it's just a very all things to all people um, kind of word. And and in that sense, it's, it's, um, it's tremendously appealing to people who want to talk about uh, how good they are or how good they will be without getting into specifics about what they <laughs> will do or what kind of person they actually are. I can't imagine what you're referring to. But um, so, <laughs> well, listen, I want to talk about that American part of it, too. So the, the country is founded on this kind of Lockean notion that everybody has inherent abilities to apprehend truth uh, and to pursue uh, both one's own interest and the common good, uh, that we are essentially self-governable. And then it, you look at the writing of the Constitution and a lot of the other foundational documents, there's this real distrust of leaders, too. I, it seems as though one of the things we don't want, having just escaped a king, uh, is to put ourselves under the control of any one person. We want checks, we want balances, we want separation right. of powers, um, and we sure as hell don't want one single 
person leading us all the time. So, so, so what happened? It feels like we've gone 180 degrees in the other direction. Yeah, I mean, so there's a. I, I find the, the story of the story of thought about leadership, the history of thinking about leadership, really fascinating, and it helps to go back uh, as you just did to the the you know the European context, like the aristocratic pre-democratic context. So, you know, if you go back to the early 19th century, for example, the big way of talking about history back then is what sometimes is called the great man theory of history. And there's a whole tradition in um, what we would now call sociology or, you know, uh, about trying to identify the qualities of, quote unquote, great, great men. Um, So that, you know, in the 19th century, a writer like Thomas Carlyle wrote a book that's called On the Heroic. uh, And it's, it's a sort of compendium of stories of heroes, you know, uh, extraordinary individuals who are pretty much like uh, like kings. They're aristocratic. The idea is they have in themselves, in their personal qualities, like such a degree of magnetism, charisma, intelligence, um, attractiveness, all these great qualities. They have all these qualities to, uh, to such an extent that it's just natural that people are going to follow them. And so... That's been the the that's the sort of backdrop, and and that's a very old fashioned way of thinking about leadership, and it, it goes all the way back, obviously to, uh, you know, it goes all the way back into history. You know, it's a sort of atavistic way of thinking about uh, who we want in charge, and the thing about it is that that never goes away. So we have more sophisticated ways of thinking about who we want to be in charge. There's new models for thinking about what a leader does. There's studies and all sorts of research has been done about people in charge. But that basic layer of we want our leaders to be tall, to be uh, intimidating, um, that has just never disappeared. And it still exists. So that if you look at the presidential debates now, uh, to a large extent, what they measure is just ferocity. So they just measure, you know, you take these people and you throw them together, and it's basically combat, and they're just against each other. And it's, it's, it's an old school way of thinking about leadership, which even though there is other ways, um, you know, it's not like all this study of leadership hasn't made any progress, but that's still with us. And on some level, it seems like it always will be. Or anyway, it takes real effort to to shrug it off. Um, Certainly, when they started so all our dem- when they started arguing yeah, about hand size, it did seem as though we drifted back to some you know Sumerian <laughs> uh, you know conversation about who best could be emperor. But Joshua, it does seem as though at a certain point here in America, we started talking out of both sides of our mouths about it. And I'm going to pin it in one place; you can pin it in another. But to me, one yeah. of the watershed moments is 1984-1985. Lee Iacocca published a bi- biography mm-hmm. or an autobiography called Iacocca, uh, fittingly. And, and you know, I mean, to me, it epitomizes one of the things that you're uh, running your thumb down the edge of, which is this notion that on the uh, that Iacocca basically said, I am this amazing person. I have these incredible traits, which have allowed right. me to become this incredibly dominant leader. Um, but so that was half the message of the book. But th- the other half of the implication of the book was, and so can you, or at least if you read my story, you will begin to understand how I got to be me, how I am me, and that will filter down into your life somehow or other, right? Because those are the two questions. Is it simply that Steve Jobs, Jack Welch, uh, Donald Trump, uh, whoever you decide to pick, is just kind of better than everybody else at this, or do they just know a bunch of things that another person could easily learn? Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that, I mean, one of the fascinating uh, aspects of the discourse around leadership is the back and forth between business and politics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in 
in, in and of course sometimes like right now we have like in Donald Trump you have a candidate who's using business experience and and essentially saying it's transferable. I was a business leader and so I could be a political leader. Um, but no, there's a there's a huge you know there was definitely there's a professor at Harvard Business School named Rakesh Kurana and he calls it the cult of the charismatic CEO and that it was born in the in the 80s essentially. Jack Welch is in fact the the sort of he started the cult um, and it was a way of talking about corporate performance that pinned the fortunes of a company almost entirely on the chief executive. Now in reality, when uh, when when scholars study, you know, how much do CEOs actually influence the performance of a company? The biggest factor determining whether a company grows or shrinks is just the size of the market that they serve and whether it's growing or shrinking. But it's very appealing to have the idea, uh, as an investor, say, who's looking to understand, um, you know, what will turn a business around. It's very appealing to think to yourself, if we just get a CEO in here who instills confidence and who projects uh, a kind of... Uh, you know, huge force of personality that things could turn around. So, yeah, one huge thing that's happened is this cult of the CEO. And the other thing that's happened, which is related to that, is um, the, the distinction that started to be drawn between leadership and, some, and management, for example, or between leadership and the use of power. So all these self-help books that are about um, how, to, how you yourself can be a leader, you know, obviously there's a little bit of a contradiction there because if you're a leader, you have to be empowered. You have to have power in order to lead in most organizations. So if I, as a person who's pretty far down the hierarchy and buying books about how to lead, that those books will only make sense to me if leadership is sort of reformulated to be not about power, but about persuasion, about personality, about how to talk to other people. Um, and so in other words, leadership has softened. Um, and it's it's fascinating when you go back and you look at how leadership was talked about in, say, 1920. Uh, often it's talked about a leader can force people to do what he, it's invariably he, what he wants. A leadership is someone, a leader is someone who can guarantee obedience. Um, and that's not how we talk about leadership now at all. But it's become a little less coherent of an idea now that leaders are just supposed to inspire us to follow them instead of being able to force us to do what they want. Um so yeah, there's there's that that's been a huge a huge shift in in what and what leadership means. Another the, another um, question that that uh, you saw studied is a question. It was a term that I wasn't really familiar with in this context. Uh, the the notion of a filtered leader or a leader who's been through a filtration process. So the best example of this is the military. Pretty much everybody gets trained the same way. Everybody goes to West Point or its equivalent, takes the same courses, then jumps through all the same hoops, and so and then gradually it emerges that General So and So is slightly better at certain things than than General So and So, and and that pretty soon that's who winds up in the joint chiefs of staff, and they're not an A-plus to everybody else's C-plus. They're more like a B-plus to everybody else's B, that everything kind of <laughs> clusters right. around a mean. Uh, uh, and and in, in contrast to that, in situations where you bring in Steve Jobs to run your yogurt company, um, he hasn't really studied yogurt. He hasn't really done the things that, uh, that you want people to do to understand the yogurt market, but you think he's some kind of genius. That's a little bit more like a three-pointer, right? Maybe, maybe he hits the shot and you get three points. But there's also a very strong possibility he's going to throw up an air ball. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the most, it's a great book. There's a great book. It's called Indispensable, um, When Leaders Really Matter. And it's by another Harvard Business School professor named Gautam Makunda. And he did a pretty, a very clever thing. So what he did was he looked at all the presidents. He he looked at 40 of the presidents. He excluded a few of them because they were, they, they didn't serve in office long enough. He looked at 40 presidents. And he gave them what he called a filtration score. So a filtration score was basically, you know, how many hoops had they jumped through in government before they became president? 
Um, so, you know, uh, somebody like Gerald Ford jumped through many hoops. Uh, he, he served in office for a really long time before he became president. Whereas somebody like George W. Bush didn't. And he had this huge boost of family connections, which made it easier for her to, him to become president. Um, so Gerald Ford was what he called a very filtered president. He'd been filtered by the political process. And George W. Bush was a relatively unfiltered president, um, as was Abraham Lincoln, for example, also a relatively unfiltered president. So he, he gave all of these presidents a filtration score. And then he compared those scores to different rankings of how good or bad those presidents had been. And what he found was that the highly filtered leaders, the highly filtered presidents, tended to be in the middle of most people's presidential rankings. And then the unfiltered presidents tended to be uh, at the extremes. They were either really good, like Abraham Lincoln, or really bad. Um, and the lesson that he took away from this was, uh, I, th I thought, a really interesting lesson. It was basically that um, it's hard to predict with an unfiltered leader, with a leader who hasn't had a lot of experience, what kind of leader they're going to be. They could be great, they could be bad. It's hard to say, right? Um, but what would end up happening when you look at these leaders is that the unfiltered ones, um, they they often are the uh, a better choice for when things are so bad that on average, your average leader isn't going to do well. Like if we're in the middle of a crisis, you just want to roll the dice sometimes. Um, and that's a, that's a line of thinking that you see reflected in our current presidential race where Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, who are the outsider candidates, the, the least filtered candidates. Of course, Bernie has been in the Senate for a really long time. Um, but even so, he's identifies as an outsider. His point is, I'm not part of the establishment. Those two very unfiltered leaders, their candidacies are based on the idea that we're in this moment of extreme crisis. And they're basically saying uh, to the American people that what, that what we should do is just roll the dice on them. Um, of course, we can't know whether they're going to be a great leader or not. But things are so bad that an average leader, is this is their argument, uh, is going to mess it up anyway. So you might as well just go crazy. And maybe you're going to end up with an Abe Lincoln um, because you've, you've chosen someone who hasn't been through all those hoops. Um, now, whether this is a good way to choose, whether we're in a crisis of that extent, uh, whether in that deep a crisis at this moment, uh, is something that we all have to think about. And it's this is sort of an example sometimes of how the talk around leadership can be um, manipulated to make certain ways of thinking about leadership feel natural. Um, but in fact, you know, we can debate whether we're in a moment of crisis that's comparable, for example, to the Civil War when it made sense to have an Abraham Lincoln in charge. Yeah, and I want to come back to that moment of crisis thing uh, when we're talking to Mark Hetherington. But uh, Joshua, uh, one of the things that uh, it occurred to me reading your article is so there, there's as we're choosing a national leader, there's kind of there's multiple narratives going on. So one of the narratives, and it's the one that I think a lot of people want to believe, is that it's essentially different people explaining their policies and plans and maybe some of their qualifications as well. And then you pick the one that you think makes the most sense or fits you. So Ted Cruz wants to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. Bernie Sanders wants to make it, you know, far more co comprehensive and, and and benevolent to to, to everybody. And uh, Hillary Clinton wants to kind of manage it, uh, maybe a slightly different way, but she's basically going to manage what's there. And so we look at those options and all the other options that there might be, and say, oh, I like that one. And then we begin to assemble our choice that way from all these plans and policies and ideas that each candidate puts out. But my guess is that something far more visceral is going on a lot of the time. And a lot less conscious, too, that we're we're, in fact, um, listening to kind of mythopoeic narratives, you know, that, that, right, that right. are more meaningful to us. I'll let you pick up that uh, baton and run with it. Well, you know, there's two um, there's two thoughts that I have about that, that 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 occurred to me from reading all these leadership books. Um, 
and you know, in order to write this piece, I read a zillion leadership books, which was which was actually surprisingly rewarding. Um, you know, so one is that there's an idea uh, that uh, there's a, a sociologist named James Mindel, and he came up with the term. He called it the romance of leadership. His idea was that um, really, when we think about leaders, we what we really do is we use them as explanatory devices. Like we're really eager to believe in their power and in their impact on the world because it just makes the world easier to understand. So that can be true of a, about a great leader, um, and it can be true even about bad leaders. So you know, it's it's nice to be able to explain the success of a, a company by pointing to the CEO. It's also nice to be able to explain the complexities of the 1970s by pointing to Jimmy Carter and saying, oh, it was his fault he wasn't a good leader. And this is the romance of leadership. It's the storytelling aspect of leadership. And one thing that you see sometimes uh, in elections is you see candidates struggling to tell a story that resonates with people and that in that that explains the world in a way that feels appealing and feels comprehensive. Um, and I think, you know, it, it seems to me as an observer that, you know, like Hillary has struggled to explain uh, the world very well compa- compared to, say, Bernie Sanders, who really does have a narrative in that 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 makes sense. Um, and and as a, as an explainer, you know, leaders have to explain, and that's a big part of it. Um, and then another aspect of leadership that 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 plays into what you're talking about, the sort of emotional side of it, um, it just has to do with how much easier it is to see somebody's leaderly qualities uh, versus the actually sometimes kind of hard to see parts of leadership that are that often really matter. Um, so I keep coming back in watching the election to thinking about uh, the movie Steve Jobs that came out. Um, I don't know when that was. It was a few months ago, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a great movie. Michael Fassbender was was awesome as Steve Jobs. Um, the 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 theory of the movie was that Steve Jobs just had a leaderly personality. It kind of goes back to that great man theory. It's just that he had this huge charisma and he just forced everyone to do what he wanted through this charisma. He just elevated everything. When you watch the movie, you can't really understand what he did. Um, you can't figure out, like, what did he do other than stand around and yell at people? When you read a book about Steve Jobs, you see, well, there was a process he went through. And it's what leadership scholars sometimes call a process model of leadership. You know, he was really involved in all these decisions. He shepherded ideas through this process. He assembled teams. He identified goals and so on. And the problem is that from the outside, um, watching a movie, you can't really see the process. So the movie ended up just showing Steve Jobs's charisma, which isn't in itself enough to explain what he did. And on some level, when we're having a presidential election, we're all watching the movie version of that election. Like we're all watching the movie version of politics. What we're seeing is just the outside. From the outside, it's actually really hard to see what these candidates are bringing in terms of their ability to have a leadership process happen. And really all that we can see is like Donald Trump can argue really well. He can fight really well. You know, that's that's all that we're seeing. Like Bernie Sanders can give a great speech without notes. That really impresses us. These are things from the outside. They don't really get to the interior process of uh, making things work. Uh, and as a result, you sometimes have the sense that we're watching a kind of lopsided or only partial um, account of leadership uh, in in our political process. Yeah, and I think it's been it's one of the struggles that President Obama faces, right? That that basically one of the things he wants he's sort of a Lockean creature, you know, and he wants us to share his Lockean qualities. He essentially is saying to us, "Look, if you'd read this 800 pages uh, of documents about the Middle East and, and ISIS, you'd know what I know, and then you'd know that what I am doing is the right thing to do." And really, I'm kind of asking you to join with me in that highly rational process. If you'd read everything about Merrick, Merrick Garland 
Cleveland and all the other people who could be nominated for the Supreme Court, you would understand why I'm doing exactly what I'm doing. And implicit in that is this idea that we're going to do that uh, or we're going to symbolically join him at that level. Whereas Trump kind of comes in and, and you know, Freud talks about the notion and Fromm talk about the notion of the magic helper, you know, and, and Trump kind of comes in as the magic helper. He said he sort of says, well, no, that, those are weasel words. You just have to let me lead you. Uh, I, I will do this for you. You don't have to read 800 pages. I haven't read them either. You know? um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the and it's one of the ironies of Obama's presidency that he um, when he was running for office and when he was first introduced, it was all about him and his personal qualities and his charisma. Um, and, you know, you think back to the Shepard Ferry uh images of him. Uh, it was just all about, you know, hope and change and these big words. Um, it, Obama himself really participated in this cult of leadership. Um, and then that changed. You know, once he was really in office and he was running his presidency, um, he switched to this process-based model. And he would say, uh, look, like I'm leading by taking us through these steps. And, you know, here's the steps and there's going to be an outcome. And this outcome is almost independent of me. Uh, it, it's the outcome of this process that I'm convening which is a really different model. Now, I think that's probably actually more accurate. I mean, personally, um, from my understanding of what leadership is, that's the kind of leader I want. I want a leader who is attentive to the process. What you don't want is a leader who says, you know, let it be this way, and then just is checked out and essentially underlings decide what's going to happen. You know, the problem is that we live in a bureaucratic age. So there's always a tension between the idea that one person is going to change things and move things forward and the reality, which is that there's a huge bureaucracy that has to be managed and pushed and nuanced and stuff. Um, you know, when we have somebody like Trump, you're really wishing for uh, a pre-bureaucratic presidency. Right. That's um, the, that's the magic that's... of the, that's the magic of the magic helper. Joshua Rothman, we have to take a break here. I'm, gonna, I'm already in trouble with my producer, a writer and editor for The New Yorker, Joshua Rothman. We'll come back with Mark Hetherington. We'll talk about authoritarianism, which is where we're headed anyway. All right. We're talking about leadership today. Uh, We are talking with Joshua Rothman, author of Shut Up and Sit Down, uh, Why the Leadership Industry Rules. Uh, Shut Up and Sit Down seems like a pretty authoritarian statement. Mark Hetherington, professor of political science at Vanderbilt University, is the co-author with Jonathan Weiler of Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics. Uh, He is joining this conversation now. Uh, And so welcome, Mark Hetherington. Oh, thanks for having me, Colin. So at the beginning, you know, I was saying to Joshua or asking Joshua whether leadership was a term with so many different definitions that it's kind of been emptied out of meaning, emptied out of meaning as words go. But authoritarianism, I think, is something we probably can define. So uh, I'll ask you to do that. What are we talking about when we say authoritarianism? Well, the first thing that we got to start with is we're not necessarily talking about the leaders here. Okay. Um, what we're talking about is uh Uh, personality characteristics that people may have. So what, in a sense, ordinary people may be looking for in leaders. And to understand what that might be, it's probably, you know, good to understand what that worldview is, that understanding of how the world works is. And people who are authoritarian tend to be people who see the world as a chaotic and threatening place. They desire order and clarity, and to uh, achieve that, they rely on established authority to achieve it. Um, so uh, as it relates to uh, what those authorities might be, they could be like established social conventions, traditional marriage, traditional religion. Um, it could be 
a mighty leader with traditional ideas, you know, who's going to, you know, cut to the core of things like Joshua was talking about. Um, uh, they're going to set the world straight, you know, like Trump is talking about. Um, they tend to organize the world in us versus them terms. And what you tend to see is aggressiveness towards them. Um, so uh, in the context of this campaign, people who are highly authoritarian would uh, like the idea of tossing undocumented immigrants out of the country or knocking the hell out of protesters or ISIS or uh, whatever it might be. Although uh, you write that authoritarianism is also about order in what is perceived to be a chaotic world, although mm -hmm. some of the solutions you just described sounded rather chaotic themselves. Well, it depends on where you sit. Um, <laughs> you know, if you uh, if uh, uh, the notion is that the world, uh, certain parts of the world are scary, of course, the world can be scary in lots of different ways. But uh, if it's generated by otherness, um, the the uh, idea that um, those deviations from norm, you know, whether it's gays and lesbians, whether it's immigrants, whether it's people of color, um, if that's the source of the chaos and threat, um, uh, then dealing with it in a forceful, uh, straight-ahead way uh, makes a whole lot of sense. Now, of course, Everybody experiences threats. You know, people who are less authoritarian might be inclined not to see the things that authoritarians see as threatening. But, you know, they might see climate change or the bird flu or things along those lines um, as quite threatening, too. So it's not necessarily experiencing threat. Um, we all do on one level or another. Um, it's the type of threats that, that people see. But, you know, Joshua Rothman, that brings us back to narrative and storytelling. And one of the mm -hmm. uh, one of the books that you talked about, Joshua, um, talked about the romanticization of crisis that that, you know, ultimately we live in these 24 hour news cycles where all of the things that Mark Hetherington just mentioned, plus about 20 more are just flung at us like pebbles, uh, <laughs> encouraging us to think of ourselves as people in crisis and therefore needing more order. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating, you know, you, well, I guess it's almost a question I have for you, Professor, is, you know, you, you, it does seem as though we live in a world in which the media and the, the process of like news dissemination creates the sense of constant threat and also of, of nowness, like that there is right now all sorts of things that can be solved immediately and that have a extreme, um, extreme salience as, as crises, like they're, they're problems that are at their most acute at this moment. Um, I mean, it, it, I guess it gets to the question of whether these, this outlook on life is something that is, uh, develops over time in us, uh, whether it's something that we're, we're born with, just people are different and they have different attitudes, whether it's something that can be shifted by, by things like the news or, or media coverage. Um, I wonder about all that. Well, I think those are some of the most important questions that we have to get our arms around here. Um, one of the things that I think we ought to start with is, as it relates to the importance of this personality characteristic in this particular moment in time, threats the fuel for it, you know, this um, perception of a, of a crisis-filled world. And, you know, it seems to be that those threats are kind of dealing with them as above our pay grade, and we need to... Um, uh, have a leader uh, who is going to deal with them in, in certain very forceful um, ways. But the general question that you raised, I think, is such an interesting one. You know, we live in this time that, objectively speaking, I think by any definition, is so much less threatening than the one, say, that our fathers and grandfathers grew up in. And yet, if there was some way to compare our 
um, our survey responses um, now versus when our grandfathers and fathers and mothers and grandmothers were growing up, my sense is that we would see the world in a much more threatening way. Um, maybe it's from not having experienced the Great Depression and uh, the threat of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan and so forth, or um, maybe it is because of this media environment that seems bent on portraying the world in a threatening way, mostly because they know that's what sells. So all of these things, I think, contribute to a culture in which you know, a, a character like Donald Trump makes a little bit of sense. Well, Mark Hetherington, it, it also may have something to do with the manageability of a crisis and, and the degree to which the crisis is nuanced. So as you're suggesting in the comment you just made, I mean, mm -hmm. to give us a specific example, if you add up all the people who've died as victims from what we could call domestic terrorism in the United States since 9-11, you get about 93. It sort of depends on what you decide to count. Uh, do you count Garland, Texas, where only the perpetrators died, that kind of thing. But it's 93, it's 95, it's 97. So any number is too many. But 93 in 15 years is not a lot compared to a lot of the other ways that people die. 10,000 people die every year, shot to death. 20,000 people die every year, killing themselves with guns. Uh, if you wanted to save a lot of Americans, you'd make guns harder to get or uh, guns harder to use in suicides or, or something like that. You could easily beat 93 uh, in 15 years. But there's something, A, about the us and them quality of that domestic terrorism narrative, and, and something, B, about the tractability of the problem that, you know, you can at least sort of say, oh, yes, here's my solution. I can do something about this, and it won't inconvenience you very much. Yeah, that's perhaps true. Um, the other thing that I think is, is really important for us to, to keep in mind here is the nature of those, uh, those threats and what leaders are saying to us uh, to deal with them. Um, you know, there are really, other than President Obama, there, there isn't a lot of opinion leadership taking place, you know, that is, you know, from our political elites, from our leaders, that sound a, a, a very much like, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, that we ought to keep these, you know, types of um, threats in perspective. Um, instead, um, and, and, you know, this was true of both sides of the aisle um, back in the 1930s and the 1940s and the 1950s uh, and so forth. Um, you know, these days, uh, it's a it's a very partisan you know type of thing where um, one side has really worked quite hard to and benefits from causing people to see the world in a in a threatening way. The research you know pretty clearly shows that when people are worried, when people are scared, their policy preferences move in a conservative direction. They're much more you know. Uh, uh, they're much more hawkish. They're much more likely to want to engage in conflict. They're much more uh, likely to say, well, you know, um, enhanced interrogation techniques are, are okay with us. So, um, you know, we've had this sort of industry um, going on for the last 10, 15, 20 years of stoking these types of fears. And, you know, frankly, this is uh, almost a logical endpoint for it. You know, Joshua, leadership and followership are sort of conjoined twins, and and so you you and in that sense, it's very difficult to sell ice cream to Eskimos or whatever the latest cliche is about giving right. something to somebody that they don't want. And one of the phrases that I love that I encountered in some of the reading for this show was by the theorist Fritz Radl, who talked about quote the infectious and the infectiousness of the unconflicted person, um, and and that one right. of the uh, attributes of a leader is um, that sense of being unconflicted of like 
not seeing we're back to sort of Obama versus Trump, but not seeing problems as nuance or complex or a careful weighing of different options, each one having upsides and downsides that probably to the kind of uh, leader and follower that Mark Hetherington is writing about, the unconflicted part is really important. Yeah, I mean, you'll see in the current election, like this huge desire to essentially a competition over who can articulate crisis the best and who can talk about crisis in the most you know plangent and affecting and uh and and scary terms and that's because it it all goes together you know the idea that what we need is a a decisive leader who's going to save us from crisis means that we also need a leader who gets the crisis and for whom this is relatively uncomplicated they see the way through the thicket uh, it's relatively straightforward and it's 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 highly visible but one of the things that's true i think is when you read um diaries for example there's an there's an anthology that's come out from from norton it's like the norton anthology of leadership it's called leadership um and it has a lot of it's edited by a professor at west point named elizabeth samet it it has a lot of um excerpts from from diaries of leaders um, and from journals and, and other things that are sort of first personal accounts of what it's like to be a good leader. And one of the things that you find is that, you know, leaders often have to have this very nuanced and complicated sense of perspective. They have to internally uh, fully own the fact that they don't really necessarily know what they're doing, that what they're doing might not solve the, the problem, that the problem might not be something that can be solved uh, right at this moment. They have to keep all that in mind. But from the outside, you have to present this absolutely clear um, point of view, and there's a there's a real challenge for um, for for politicians who uh, like you know Donald Trump for example. We have no idea what's going on, or at least I, I don't think we have much of an idea of of what's going on in his mind as far as his whether he has a sense of perspective about himself, about what he's saying, and about his own campaign. But he's extremely effective, more effective than his competitors at seeming completely unselfconscious completely completely unconflicted whereas someone like obama this is always there's always been this self-evident streak of sort of fatalism um um and and not in a bad way in in my opinion anyway but but a sense of perspective that he's had about who he is and at times that has made people feel that he's unengaged or aloof or not taking the task seriously enough it's a real fine line that a, a good leader has to walk of having perspective but seeming completely clear-headed and decisive and in the moment um, and authentic, as they say. And speaking of leaders, my leader, Betsy Kaplan, is indicating to me that this uh, segment needs to come to an end. We want to thank Mark Hetherington and recommend his book, Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics, uh, co-authored with Jonathan Weiler, uh, Mark Hetherington, professor of political science at Vanderbilt University. We'll be back with a final conversation, the stain, the shame of Yale University, the Milgram Experiments. The greatest attribute a leader can have is modesty, and I have great modesty. I have more than any of you do, and my modesty is the top kind of modesty. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf, in a very modest trustworthy, truthful, authentic, but authentically modest way. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our intern is Benjamin Esty. A part of Bill Curry was played by Jack Welsh. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff at the John Kasich Rally, go to our website wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, are Braille and Sign Language endangered languages? And now... 
back to Colin. Yes, we've been talking to uh, Joshua Rothman. Uh, he's a writer and editor for The New Yorker. His uh, piece is called Shut Up and Sit Down, Why the Leadership Industry Rules. Uh, and uh, joining us now is our, our third and final guest, um, I should say, uh, before I even um, introduce him, that um, one of the invaluable pieces of reading that I was able to cram in some time to do before this show was the chapter in Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death. Uh, I think it's called the, the, the Spell Cast by Persons, The Nexus of Unfreedom. It has all kinds of terrific things in it. And I remembered that um, I read that particular book while I was an undergraduate at Yale University, and I arrived there in the 1970s. And one of the first things they tell you, uh, at least back in those days, your first day uh, on the campus, they say, don't do any experiments where you encourage one person to shock another person or make a person think that he's shocking another person. We don't do that anymore. So please, while you're here for these four years, don't do anything like that. And so we all followed that. Um, and this all has to do, they don't really tell you that, but uh, this all stems from uh, some experiments in 1961 by the now famous or infamous Stanley Milgram, a psychologist at Yale. Uh, and joining us right now to uh, talk about uh, those experiments, what they meant and what they've been interpreted to mean. Uh, Stephen Reicher, a professor of social psychology at the University of St. Andrews. Thanks for adding your voice to this conversation. Hello. So um, maybe you want to set the stage a little bit, explain what it was that, that, that Milgram did. These were kind of marketed to their subjects as experiments in memory and learning. Uh, something else actually was being studied. Yeah. Well, these are part of a whole tradition of work that started from the late 1940s in the work of Mutsu Sharif and followed on through Ash and Milgram and Zimbardo, which turned round our understanding of a very basic question. See, one, one, one of the major issues, uh, the cloud handing, hanging over all Western social thought was the Holocaust and the question of how human beings were capable of such acts of atrocity against fellow human beings. And originally, the uh, explanation, the obvious explanation, is there must be something monstrous about people who can act so monstrously. There must be something about them that is twisted, that is pathological, that is different from you and I. And then a series of studies began to show that perhaps circumstances can take us and change us and get even the most ordinary of persons to act in the most extreme ways. And I think the most dramatic example of that was in the work of Stanley Milgram. So what Stanley Milgram did is he invited people into the laboratory, ostensibly uh, to take part in a study of memory. And they were told, we're looking at the effects of punishment on memory, and you've got to teach someone a memory task, and each time they make an error, you've got to give them an electric shock. And each subsequent error, you go up by 15 volts. So you go 15, 30, 45, 60. And the question is, how far will you go? And he asked people how far they thought they would go, and most people thought, well, they might get to about a, a painful level, 150 volts, but not to a dangerous level. Then he asked a group of psychiatrists, and they said, well, perhaps one person in a thousand, the true psychopath, will go further, but most people won't. And in uh, the, basic, the baseline study that he did, where what happens is, um, as you give these electric shocks, you get verbal feedback from the learner, who actually is an accomplice of the experiment, who is an actor, who's making it up, but, but the actual participant doesn't know this. But you, if you're the participant, you hear this person shouting out, expressing pain, demanding to be let out. And what he found was that every single person out of 40 went to 330 volts, and two-thirds of people, in fact, 26 out of 40, 65% of people, went all the way to 450 volts, 
very end to what would be, if these were real electric shocks, a lethal level. So what he discovered was that two out of three ordinary people, it seemed, would kill someone for making errors on a memory experiment under the persuasion of an authority figure. And these were studies that literally shocked the world. They did shock the world. Um, did Milgram and, and the world draw the appropriate conclusions? Is that, in fact, the right way to think about these experiments, that they, they help explain the otherwise inexplicable uh, evil uh, of people in, in situations like the Holocaust? Or was something else much more confined to, to the rubric of this experiment going on? Well, uh, as you know full well, if you get two academics in a room, you'll get three opinions. So the notion that there is a single way of interpreting them uh, uh, is it, it, unlikely. And, and, and in, a, in a sense, there are three uh, positions on Milgram, I think, that, that today. One is that everything about Milgram is bad, that he was uh, fraudulent, he was immoral, that, um, that even the basic phenomena don't stand up. And then there's another position, if you like, of uncritical Milgram enthusiasts who say everything about Milgram is rosy, not only uh, the, the studies but the explanation. And there's a third position, which I think is great, gaining ground, it's certainly our position, which is the phenomenon is real. I mean, people um, did believe uh, in this scenario, this, 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 this little piece of theater into which they were drawn, um, that the, the acts are shocking, but the explanation is what is really in doubt. You see, what, what Milgram argued is, in effect, what happens is that in the face of authority, we enter a separate state, a separate mental state. He called it an agentic state. And in that state, we are so focused on doing the bidding of authority, of being a good follower, that we lose sight of the consequences of our actions. So it's almost as if we commit harm out of unawareness, out of thoughtlessness, out of inattention to the consequences of our action. We're so wanting to be good followers that we ignore what we're actually doing and what we're actually producing. And that explanation, I think, is deeply problematic and it is deeply flawed. And there are a number of reasons why that's true. I think the first reason is that actually Milgram didn't do one study. He did something like 30 studies, different variants of his studies. And the proportion of obedience varies from 0% to 100%. And across all the studies, if you do an analysis of all the studies, actually 58% of people disobey. Also, although often we're told that this is a, a study which shows that people always obey, always obey authority, it doesn't show that. And if there's an automatic tendency to obey authority, it can't really explain either the variability between the conditions or the overall level of disobedience. The second problem is, if you believe that people are automatically following orders, then if you look closely at the studies, a Milgram, who, as I say, was almost um, you know, a, a great showman, these were wonderful bits of theatre, whatever you think of them in moral terms or in terms of science, were very powerful, very carefully scripted. So if people in the studies started to disagree, if they showed uh, concern, if they said, hey, look, what's going on? We're hurting these people. He scripted the experimenter to use various prods. There were four prods. Only one of them was an order. You have no choice. You must continue. And the interesting thing is when you look closely, every time that prod was used, people stopped. Mm -hmm. People asserted their choice. 
So in many ways, if these studies show anything, they don't show that people automatically obey orders. Yeah, and the they, third they, point, I think, uh, is the most we, important one and the most right. interesting one, which is, if it were true that um, people paid no attention to the learner, then they shouldn't be affected by what the learner says. But again, if you look closely, and again, Milgram scripted these things very carefully, you find the point at which people are most likely to drop out are the points where the learner says, I'm in pain, or says, let me out if I hear, or says, you have no right to continue. So the notion that we're not listening to the learner doesn't stand up. And in fact, Milgram's explanation doesn't do justice to the real richness and the real relevance of what he's showing. And uh, we, we may have to sort of pause there for a second because we're almost out of time, uh, Stephen Reicher, and I, I want to give uh, maybe 60 seconds tops to, to Joshua Rothman. I know this is something that you've looked at, too. And in a way, this makes the argument that leadership isn't one thing. It's a whole bunch of things. And, and the circumstances under which you might be able to lead somebody to do something that's against their better judgment or, or better angels is more than probably just putting on a lab coat. Um, you've got about 30 or 40 seconds to react to that. Absolutely. I mean, so the one of the big lessons of leadership studies, of the study of leadership, is just how much it's about context. It's so driven by context. You know, a platoon is a context where leadership works really well. A university faculty is a context where leadership doesn't work really well. And one of the questions to ask about our current political moment is, are we, as a country, turning into a context very uh, that's very welcoming to strong leadership, um, or are we turning into a context that's hostile to it? Um, and and the the big lesson of all of this is, you know, leadership is something that exists in a system between would-be leaders and potential followers. And the followers have to be ready. They have to want it in order for it to work. All right. Perfect place to end. Joshua Rothman, thank you so much. Also, Stephen Reicher. Uh, also, Mark Hetherington. And a special thanks to my leader, Betsy Kaplan. Do you want me to shock somebody now, Betsy? I'll do it. I'll do it. If you tell me it's okay to do You know what else a great leader does? She delegates. So today I've delegated the last word to Marcel Marceau. Go ahead, Marcel. 